Well, hello, and welcome to my recording studio. You guys, this is going to be probably one of the best podcast episodes that I've done this entire experience, and I only think it's going to get better. So please enjoy. The topic of this podcast is all about ADHD, autism, and psychedelic plant medicines. Um, We even go into a little bit of the psychedelics that are not plant-based, and I hope it blows your mind as much as it did mine. You know, the big take-home lesson for this episode is really about understanding that for any problem that you have in this world, there is a solution. We get into this place where you get a diagnosis and you just have to live with something for the rest of your life. It's just not true. It's just the way that our Western medical system has kind of let it fall um, into. And so... I'm here to tell you it's not it's not the way it's supposed to be. We can actually have a better life and there is a solution to every single problem in this world. You just have to understand how to find it. So keep that in mind as you listen to this episode of the Whole Healing Podcast. I hope you enjoy all of it. supervising physician who is a published author in psychedelic plant medicines and other plant medicines for that matter. And then um, Aaron Orsini. Aaron has some incredible experiences with autism and LSD. And so I just wanted to kind of get us all in the same room as dietitians who kind of know the metabolic mechanisms behind some of these plants as, um, as they relate to nutritional composition. Um, and then, you know, have a conversation about what that looks like, uh, in the whole person approach, right. For healing. But Aaron, um, do you mind kind of giving us an an introduction to you and just kind of talking a little bit about yourself and your experiences? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been involved in this work for about 10 years. It started with my own kind of personal healing. Um, and then that led me to write and publish my first book, which was autism and acid that was mostly focused on LSD. Um, But that book ended with kind of a call to action for other people to share their stories about uh, navigating autism with psychedelic use. And so we've since published three more books. Um, uh, There's Autistic Psychedelic, which is an anthology of stories from people using various medicines, Introduction to Psychedelic Autism, which is kind of just like a primer and a foundation. And then we just published our 102-page textbook for our online course, which is the Psychedelic Autism course. And um, so, yeah, I teach uh, therapists and facilitators in Oregon and Colorado. I'm also a researcher, uh, co-author partner at the University of Toronto and University College London. So we're going to have some papers out in the years ahead. And we're recruiting actively for a psilocybin and depression study in autistic adults uh, this fall. So that's just like some of the stuff that I'm involved in. Um, But yeah, that's uh, pretty much yeah, I've heard from maybe 10,000 or so people now who've sent me their reports or come to our support meetings. So yeah, a lot of lot of knowledge um, and a lot of people who contributed to that pool of knowledge. So that's a little bit about me. That's absolutely spectacular. Holy cow, what a beautiful thing that you're putting into this world. I'm, I'm so excited to see what that does. So I was listening to your podcasts on your website, um, autisticpsychedelic.com. Correct, yeah. Okay, and, and so just listening to the podcast and, and the lingo, right? I think Historically, in modern day America, we're not really familiar with spectrum disorders or even just like the lingo associated with 
spectrum in general. And there was a lot of words that I came across and, and I, you know, I had to Google a whole bunch of things and it was really interesting. So I'd like to help everybody kind of understand what this looks like. Um, so can, can you kind of explain what neurodivergence is? Yeah, so some of that language you're alluding to has to do with a movement uh, that's known as like the neurodiversity movement. And that's a movement away from pathologization. In other words, treating conditions like autism or even ADHD as conditions that are less than uh, the typically developing populations and considering them instead to be differences that can be either accommodated or when placed into the right context that can be exceptional. Um, so uh, the, the term neurodivergent is really kind of like a prideful reclaiming of that sort of difference, but referring more specifically to, you know, uh, obviously neuro meaning like brain differences, uh, differences in like the nervous system itself and the processing of information and sensory input. So neurodivergent is kind of like a less connotated term that's going to allow for us to kind of identify. Um, but if you really take that definition to a further point, you could argue that like anyone that receives a DSM diagnostic might then become uh, atypical as compared to the typically developed developing populations. So uh, there's probably more neurodivergent humans on earth than there are typically developing uh, uh, in that sense. So it's just more of like a new speak in that way. Um, so yeah. That's really incredible. And, and gosh, I even cringe when I use the word disorder or disease, right? Because I think of my ADHD as highly advantageous in some ways. And so I'd love to learn more about what your experiences personally with autism and how that benefits you and how that affects you and, and really give people an idea of what that looks like in, in real world. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, it's interesting you mentioned that we actually got approval for the University of Toronto study to refer to it as autism spectrum condition rather than disorder, because um, the disorder kind of exists in a vacuum uh, and doesn't really indicate that, like, the individual just has a, a specific kind of predisposition. Um, again, just trying to strip away those connotations. But for myself, I was actually diagnosed with ADHD in my adolescence. Uh, so I'm, I have ADHD and autism. And so I relate to what you just mentioned insofar as, you know, part of both conditions is the, you know, propensity to kind of focus on very narrow and special interests. And also like kind of like, even though we think of ADHD as sort of this sort of cliche of being flighty or like you can't really keep attention, we're actually quite good at like having like laser focused attention. What's difficult for us sometimes can be attentional switching. Uh, so I find this to be highly advantageous in my work because my narrow and focused interest is, <laughs> you guessed it, it's this exact topic we're talking about. And I have an ability to really go deep on it and retain that information and have like a really deep uh, retention of that same information. I struggled in public school because every 40 minutes you go from, you know, learning about science to learning about like the history of the 1700s to then whatever is next. Um, so I had a difficulty switching uh, in that regard. But in my adult life, given the ability to specialize and given the ability to kind of architect my own work schedule and time, I, I thrive um, in ways and environments that others might struggle in. Uh, so I, I value that. You know, as we talk today, you'll hear me make a lot of asterisks about being like, well, that's my experience. Also, that's not all of these people's experiences, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I've got a question, Aaron. Um, you talked about LSD. I'm curious, have you done any research or has anyone else that you're aware of looked at other psychedelics and their ben potential benefit? 
Yeah, so you know, there's a there's a broad range of research that has uh has happened and is in the works as well. The most uh above board research, there was a there was a patch of research in the 60s that you kind of you can look at it, but you kind of have to throw it away. It doesn't really follow up with the same standards of ethics, or you know, there's not much in terms of like there was no blood draws, there was no brain imaging. It was just this really kind of crude uh like pre-prohibition research that happened, and that was with LSD and psilocybin. Uh, at that point, psilocybin had just recently started to be synthesized. Albert Hoffman was the first to synthesize it. He also synthesized LSD for the first time. So prohibition happened. And then in the more like Renaissance era, uh, there was an MDMA study that the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies did with MDMA. That was, again, targeting social anxiety in this population. We're not really targeting autism. We're not trying to cure this condition and eliminate it. Um, we're really just addressing these challenges. So that MDMA study was really just a safety study, but they did get like a good result. Uh, the group that was receiving psychotherapy in conjunction with MDMA uh, like scored more clinically significant improvements on their social anxiety scale. And, um, you know, I've experienced that firsthand. I've interfaced with lots of people when we work in various containers. Uh, and that that seems like that result would hold. And with MDMA about to gain FDA approval next year, good chance that that off-label use might come to this population as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're working on the, the first psilocybin uh, study specifically targeting depression. Uh, but there is an active study that's happening at King's College London right now, which is a, more of a mechanistic study where they're giving psilocybin at lower ranges, like th three milligrams, five milligrams uh, of just like synthesized psilocybin. That's from Compass Pathways. Uh, and they are administering that. And then they're also doing brain imaging and they're comparing autistic individuals to non-autistic individuals to see if there might be a serotonin signaling difference. Um, and with these drugs being serotonin in nature, um, they could be, you know, potentially very utile uh, for this population if those atypicalities can be addressed through something like a, a supplementation of something that kind of, when you look at LSD or psilocybin, it very much mimics structurally very similar to serotonin. You know, another thought I have, one of the things we're looking at now is the use of very little ketamine. Are you familiar with ketamine as well? Yeah, I actually just edited a book chapter on ketamine for autistics. Uh, it was written by Dr. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it just it should be published soon. I think it's called The Revolutionary Ketamine. And uh, yeah, they have looked at that. They've been looking at that specifically with like effects with BDNF. Um, that's beyond my pharmacological knowledge, uh, but there has been some looks at it and it, it is safe and efficacious in this population, but it's mainly used in the ways that it would be used in non-autistics, like interventions, suicide interventions. Sometimes people use it as like a transitionary medicine to maybe pursue other psychedelic work because uh, like, you can safely take it with SSRIs. And so sometimes they use that in the titration phase of like kind of going back off of their meds or excuse me, tapering. And so sometimes we've seen that application also within our group. Good. Yeah. One of the things you might want to share with the other researchers you're working with is we've been using it now very low dose sublingually on a daily basis. It has ultimately the same effects as psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca in terms of it stimulating BDNF and neuronal growth and seeing some pretty dramatic results. So um, I'd be glad to share later with you if you want some of those uh, findings we're having that we're going to be presenting soon. I think it is a little bit easier medicine to work with right now because it's available off-label. Uh, you don't have as much regulatory challenges as you do with some of the psychedelics, but it seems like it has a common mechanism of action. So I'd be interested to yeah, read that chapter when it comes out. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't know if you came across, there was a recent paper about the TRKB uh, and like how significant that might be and the overlaps with antidepressant across all these drugs. 
Um, again, I'm a self-taught neuropsychopharmacologist. You're a doctor, so I, I'll bounce you that paper. Maybe you can also give me some feedback about that as well. Yeah, I'd love to share some information with you back and forth, because obviously you know a lot. I appreciate that. Speaking of the um, the regulatory challenges that you just brought up, Mitch and Aaron, you probably know a lot about this. I would love myself and probably everyone to just get caught up to speed with right now where the legislation is at, where the policy is at when it comes to maybe each of these primary um, you know, psychedelics or, you know, psychoactive, you know, drugs that we're talking about, because I know there's been some recent happenings in Colorado and possibly other states. So uh, that'd be great to know. Colorado 2025 psilocybin sessions will begin, but because there's no insurance, other such things, it's looking like it's like a four or $5,000 per session kind of service. So not the most accessible for everybody, um, but it's the first step of like gathering more data and, and being able to kind of continue from there. Thank you. That, that's certainly helpful. And then big picture, you know, with like just the all the re the scheduling of these drugs, too. I mean, these are in the, you know, schedule one federally. Do you think it's going to take that step of really reevaluating that, looking at the evidence, existing evidence, allow us to do more research? Um, but do you think it'll take us to remove some of these from that schedule one for us to be able to really widely use it in it? And yeah, and, uh, and in a yeah, safe and effective it's, way. It's 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 unclear from what I've read, even with MDMA, that that there's all these different governing bodies that aren't necessarily in in full sync, and the FDA is separate from the DEA, is separate from all these other things. Uh, for example, cannabis is still Schedule One, and yet everyone's right. selling it uh, in every different dispensary. Any of those places are are violating federal law federal law every day. So it's unclear how this is going to all work. That's also what's making these services expensive. Places like Oregon and Colorado, you could get your property seized for following the state law, and, and yet uh, you're violating that federal law. So. MDMA might be the first to set a precedent of a reschedule, but we haven't really seen a major rescheduling like that since scheduling was invented by Nixon in like 1970. So uh, it's really, it remains to be seen. Uh, but I think if MDMA can kind of break that wall, I think it'll, it'll set precedent for the path for how that looks and how that is. But I mean, Rick Doblin from MAPS has been like almost 30 years now. His thesis in college was like how to reschedule a drug. And he like carried out his own roadmap over these last decades. And they're still not sure if it's going to fully get there because of there's just, you know, there's a lot of tension when it gets to that that final change point. Fascinating. You're very knowledgeable, Aaron. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know your stuff. I can tell this is your, this is your life passion. Uh, and I, I think the implications are great you know and I, I think the possibilities the potential i mean I, you know depression you know just in the in the lens of mental health right i know we're talking about autism as well but with depression we're, we're over i believe over 320 million globally you know diagnoses probably even more than that I, I mean maybe mitch you know some details there but i think it's it's time to really explore other options there and um and you know mitch maybe you could also enlighten us on how effective traditional, you know, pharmaceutical antidepressants are, because I know that there's, you know, that's, that's a hit or miss and maybe what you've seen preliminary with um, these psychoactive or um, <clears throat> uh, uh, what's the term, what's the proper term here? Uh, uh, psych psychedelics. Yeah. Is that, and is that, is, is that the proper term as we like continue this conversation? 
it keeps evolving. You know, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a new term out if you want to use the latest. They're calling them psychoplastogens, neuroplastogens. Okay. They keep making up new names for these medicines because they do so many different things. Yeah, they, and it depends on who you listen to regarding statistics. The, the traditional uh, line is that antidepressants are effective two-thirds of the time, uh, whereas some people believe they're much less effective than that. They certainly do help some people, but there are a lot of people they don't help the traditional antidepressants. And that's why it's so exciting to see these new medicines that are so much more effective, um, whether it's ketamine, whether it's psilocybin. I mean, the this, this clinical trials are pretty remarkable in terms of efficacy, um, not just for depression, but for many other psychiatric diagnoses as well. You know, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, substance abuse, it just keeps going. And uh, that's what's so exciting is we're able to treat people and help people now that we couldn't help before. And how many, um, again, I don't know what the current statistics are, but it just keeps skyrocketing. The, you know, the rates of depression around the world, especially here in the U.S., are skyrocketing. And uh, we're just not doing a great job of treating them right now. So I think the, the hope is that these new medicines provide hope for people that we haven't been able to treat as well historically. It, amazing. And I correct me if I'm wrong here, but it appears, too, that the, you know, the dosages are incredibly different. Like, you can have a a one or two time experience with psilocybin, for example, and have dramatic long-term benefits, maybe six months to a year or even more than that. Whereas, you know, you know, antidepressants, you would have to rely on on a daily basis to kind of get you in that hormone balance. Is that, is that right? Yeah, some of the studies with psilocybin have shown long-term uh, benefits, even lasting years after a single dose. And what we're starting to see with the very low dose sublingual ketamine too, is people are often able to get off their other psychotropic medications or antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and then sometimes get off the ketamine and not need to continue on it either. So um, we need longer term follow-up studies, but it's really encouraging to think that we're not just treating symptoms, we're actually getting to the root cause and stimulating the brain to heal and repair itself in a way that may have lasting benefits. A pill might make you happier, but what would give you lasting happiness is a change of environment. If you're in a traumatic environment or a depressing environment or a depressing job or whatever it might be. So that ability to like think creatively, flexibly, and then enact that change. And as, um, as Mitch had also pointed out as well, like uh, if that psychoplastogen effect is truly at play to actually ingrain those be behavior patterns and have them stick uh, in a way that like, you know, it's like old dogs learning new tricks essentially. Uh, and that's, that's profound. Like that's, we're tapping into like the foundations of like, how does learning work and how does learning work at later phases in life? That's so incredible guys. Wow. And, and, and so that leads me to, to, you know, maybe I've been trying to do some research and I can't quite figure out you know, are, are, are the mechanisms for the, the neurogenesis, right? Building new brain cells. Um, BDNF is clearly playing a role in this. Can, can one of you guys maybe speak to how how the body builds new brain cells using psilocybin, using ketamine, using, you know, all these different all these different plant medicines? Yeah, I'll pass that over to Mitch. He's, he's the doctor. <laughs> sure. It looks like the, um, well, there's some biochemistry involved here. So most of the psychedelics, traditional psychedelics work on something called the 5-HT2A receptor. It's a serotonin receptor. And by stimulating that receptor, it triggers the production of other pathways, other proteins along certain pathways, the TERK-B receptor and some others that ultimately converge on something called BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which I think of as miracle growth for the brain and the nervous system. It stimulates the production of new proteins that build new neurons, build new connections or synapses between neurons. Um, even can remyelinate or put insulation back on neurons that have been damaged. So it's it's really an amazing process. And then the ketamine does the same thing, not through the 
um, 5-HT2A receptor, but through something called uh, glutamate receptors, there's something called an AMPA receptor. So they converge on the same biochemical pathway. Ultimately, what they do is they stimulate the nervous system to grow and, and uh, create not only healthier nerves, but as Aaron was saying, two new pathways, which is fascinating to see. Something else we're seeing, there was just a study in November of last year in science, some MIT researchers discovered we have something called silent synapses which are synapses or connections between neurons that are not turned on yet because they're lacking something called AMPA receptors, those same things that ketamine works on. And if you can stimulate those receptors, suddenly you get new, new synapses functioning. And in the mice study they did, as many as a third of our synapses in an adult brain may be silent and just waiting to be turned on. And it looks like these psychedelics may have the potential to turn on these neurons. So when you hear people saying we're only using a part of our brain, this is more evidence that it may be true. And the psychedelics may turn on more of our brain and give us more potential to utilize our brains more effectively. <laughs> wow. <You're> yeah. <laughs> wow, I was whispering because I was just like so much shock. Wow, um, that is really freaking incredible and like really freaking exciting. Um, and so... Aaron, do you mind maybe like walking us through kind of like the subjective experience of like that transformation or even like, I, and I mean, I think I would assume what's going on is that neurogenesis, but like, what does that look like in the user's experience perhaps? Yeah. I mean, I could speak from, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep it within my limited, like my personal experience and speak a bit. Like I speak with, when I, when I speak about these other subjective effects, it's with the liberties of like, you know, these 10,000 people who've either written me or spoken to me in support spaces and that. And some of the, some of the kind of unifying uh, factors, let's just, let's just pick one psychedelic for the sake of it. Uh, like let's just psilocybin for the sake of it. Um, has, has that capacity for, you know, again, uh, creating that psychological flexibility in the acute drug window, while the drug is, uh, you know, online with, and and bound into those receptor sites, like you're you're experiencing like an enhancement of like you know various sensory experiences, which for certain autistic people might be you know a challenge. Some of us already have these predisposed like hypersensitivities, so it's something to keep in mind for individuals who are engaging. You might you know colors might be more brilliant or sound might be more impactful, but there's also something very interesting wherein it's some. It, for some, it mimics something like a meditative state. And even though those sounds or those lights or things might get brighter or louder, there seems to be this sort of reported like spaciousness in terms of how people relate to their sensory experience differently. Um, and the same way that these compounds are used in say palliative care. And like, you can be experiencing, you know, a similar thought, but you're relating to that thought in a totally new and novel way. Like I'm going to die suddenly becomes like at a distance, you can consider that and you can consider it with a little bit more of like curiosity rather than some of like the conditioned fear response as well. And, you know, I, I think for our population, part of the reason why the MDMA trials were so effective, um, why I really believe in MDMA is a great like starter medicine for people that are working with trauma and working with just issues of like personal narrative is just it really lowers that fear response to the point to where you can really look at really scary or dark or like, you know, things like grief, things like, you know, loss, um, but you have a spaciousness and you have this capacity to you know not be triggered to the point to where similarly like you can actually some people remember things that their mind almost doesn't permit them to remember in a normal baseline state so you're getting that extended like retrieval of those memories or of those experiences kind of going into areas that don't normally feel safe and that means you can therefore you have even more material on the table that you can then you know draw your conclusions and like chart a course for your future based on because oftentimes I think our brains kind of self-preservingly 
you know, we don't, if we, if we spent all day thinking about just that trauma, that's like where the, the fullest extent of PTSD is like you're incapacitated and yet you still can't really retrieve it. You can't like unpack it. You can't like expel it. And so have being able to reach back and, and that's, these drugs are sometimes referred to as like intactogenic, which is like to touch within, to retrieve something from within. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of these drugs, they're very ineffable, so to speak, to explain or express, especially at higher doses when you're going into like, you know, realms of communication and direct experience that we lack language for. Um, but in a general sense, you know, it's, I think it, to reduce all of that into like a simple thought, it's like when you experience something that is just not your typical experience, I think the mo one of the most helpful things for my population is we realize, oh, like I have a, a normal way of seeing, like you just assume that like that can't be altered, but just having a different experience for a time, it gives you some contrast to look at your normal state of, of perception and be like, oh, weird, I'm always only focused on this kind of stimuli or only ever thinking from this perch of perception. And once you have that contrast, Trust, then you can start to simultaneously like not take your normal sober state so seriously because you're like there's another way I could look at it even when you can't fully occupy that same altered state like in a sober baseline you can know that like your own sober baseline state is just yet another kind of possible way of seeing and so it becomes like less like trapped less like stuck in one way of seeing and that flexibility just again like I think it gentles you naturally to be like I might be kind of deceiving myself a bit when I'm like in my day to day life, like you become aware of that. And then you don't get quite so, you know, uh, not everything becomes quite so serious and uh, and give you give yourself a little bit of grace. Um, yeah, that's a that's my best attempt. I don't know. There's many philosophers and poets that have tried to explain this stuff. So I don't know. <laughs> um, that's incredible. That's that's a, way, a really good subjective way to put it. Um, anybody got any like science behind this like anybody got any like mechanisms or parts of the brain or dad <laughs> you know Aaron what you remind me of is a book I'm reading right now um it's it's very related to what you're describing I was just going to pull up the name of it because I can't remember it. it's got a long title it's um plant intelligence in the imaginal realm beyond the doors of reception into the dreaming of earth written by a really brilliant guy who talks about ungating and how we are so gated in our brains, we filter out so much information, but in certain experiences with plant medicines, for example, some of that gating or filtering is removed. And so we see the world very differently. And, and that's what you're reminding me of is just that ability to see things differently in a way that's really can be very growth promoting and very healing and very powerful. Yeah, no, definitely. Very much so, you know, and, 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 and I don't, I don't want to like implant belief structures into others, but like I, I just watched a documentary yesterday. It was, uh, I think it was called Dosed uh, Trip of a Lifetime. It was about a woman that was going through palliative care and she just kind of had this experience of like her whole life up until that psilocybin session was fixated on like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then she had this experience of like watching things come into existence and out of existence and just kind of seeing this like rhythm and harmony and beauty to the whole process. And she was like, oh, I'm just part of that process. And it was just like suddenly okay. And you can rationally explain that to someone and they can be like, oh, that's nice. But like when you vividly experience that, like when you directly experience it, it just becomes a part of your lived experience the same way, you know, an, a, a dream might be a dream, but that dream still has like an impact on how you might, how did you react to that dream? What does that say about you? And what is, 
you know, whether the dream is real or not, or whether we're all hallucinating right now as we talk to each other, like either way, like you form some sort of relational like meaning out of it. And then that gives you some framework to go forward. I think um, just to tie this all in together, what, a, what an incredible conversation, guys. But, you know, I, I hear you talking, Aaron, about these these mental states that we're in. And I just can't, as a dietitian, help but think about our relationship with food um, and how there's so much fear behind it, how there's so much avoidance. There's so much, you know, um, ungating that's needed. Right. And I and I wonder, Jack, Emily, what, what do you guys think about this idea of, you know, um, coming to new mental states when it comes to our relationship with food and, and our relationship with health and our bodies in general. Um, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I think you bring up some really great points of how we're very much in this like set perspective, right? And sometimes we need to take a step back and see something from a different lens in order to grow. So I think that navigating a relationship with food can be so impactful when you take that different perspective, but it's hard to do that because sometimes you don't even see the problem at hand because it's just so normalized um and it's so much in our routine and it's so much just how we think we've been trained I talk about this all the time like you're um, like the thought triangle we have like a thought an action a behavior and it goes in the circle and so I think that if you work to change that thought process it really can spark just a domino effect I absolutely agree Emily I behavior is deep it's deeply rooted and it is one of the hardest things to modify um and with food it's i think that's at the top of the list and you know i i have many clients who are 50 60 70 right and they've lived a certain way for so long and they've had certain habits for so long and to just tell them no try this do this it, you know it, it's it takes much more than that it takes consistent true one-on-one therapy in a way nutritional therapy to uh to kind of rewire right some of these brain pathways that we're talking about but i I think it starts super small you got to be you have to always approach it in um in a very easy way that doesn't invoke any kind of fear or or stress right and then just and and build on that and and just kind of uh, not get too discouraged as well when you do have setbacks and so forth. But I wonder, I do wonder if this whole realm of, of therapy could also help with food and food addiction and um, relationship with food and eating disorders. That's a fascinating realm, right? I mean, that is, that is a serious psychological condition, right? And, and I think the potential, I, I, I really do not, no, and I do not want to speak to um, something I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I hear what Aaron you're talking about, what Mitch you're talking about, and the potential of the of rewiring brain, one neurogenesis, but also pathways and how that could possibly spill over into, into the population of eating disorders. Jack, it's already happening. There are already studies looking at ketamine to treat eating disorders. And Aaron, I don't know if you know of any other work with psychedelics and eating disorders, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some research out there. Yeah, there definitely is for the same reasons we've talked about. And and it's the same reasons why we see potentials for existing therapies in autism, like occupational therapies or, you know, uh, anything that's focused on, you know, patterns of behavior, uh, which is most autism therapies, uh, just being ad- like uh, adjuncted by uh, these medicines. And and I th- if you take it, I mean, 
I try not to get too much on like the it's easy to get very excited and like fanatical about what this might be and what this could be. But sometimes it feels to me as someone who has a lot of firsthand experience or just being around a lot of people. It's a bit like if you're like, oh, like potassium helps you recover from workouts. And then it's like, oh, well, then, yeah, just add that. to. Okay, cool. Like it's the same. Like it's just once you have that basic principle kind of like established, then, you know, you can kind of apply it very broadly. Um, and it's. I think there's a lot of focus because of the way the medical like research is structured on these like individual sessions being highly impactful, but like, you know, every so often and rare, but I think at those even like lower ranges, just kind of like, like greasing the wheels of that psychological flexibility, um, you know, pending eventually and decades from now, we'll have longitudinal data showing, you know, whether or not some of this microdosing or threshold dosing is safe or not. Um, that's going to take a while to get that long-term data, but you know, uh, it's awesome to see the high dose, like one off sessions being deeply impactful. But I think these things will just to me, like I view them as like health supplements already. Um, I'm lucky enough to have that access. Like in Colorado, we can it's state protected to grow here and share mushrooms with people. Um, so they're just we just have them abundant. And like they're common in a lot of, you know, people in the same way someone would get together at a bar. There's like a much healthier version of that where we get together and, you know, we we talk about our our, our issues together and like connect and and kind of heal and community in that way I, there's such a there's such a stigma around the psychedelics right and it i aaron how would you approach uh, this conversation with someone who is uh very stubborn you know me and who has probably never experienced it themselves and has only heard the horror stories right and the hallucinogenic right <laughs> scary thoughts like what would be your first line there I mean, you know, my, this whole project, apart from the research I mentioned, you know, the podcast uh, that uh, Jenna mentioned and the, some of the books I had mentioned, a big initial phase has just been to get stories. When you hear it from, when you hear the same chorus repeating across all these different people from all these different cultures with all these different challenges, and they're all kind of hitting some of the same basic notes, you know, some people just need to find that mirror. Um, I mentioned that Dosed movie. I sent that to my parents because it's like a boomer aged woman that's like, you know, going through a very serious you know, like late stage cancer journey and like everyone needs some degree of like a mirror. But for us, like when we have people from our group share their stories, it often starts like I was autistic. I was when I was younger, things were challenging in this way or that way. Then I went through these psychedelic experiences and suddenly those challenges weren't so. And so when you can connect it from like, oh, I relate to those challenges, but I haven't gone past that barrier. That person seems to have. What's up with that? It creates like a curiosity. Um and, you know, I think that's just soliciting those stories, sharing those stories um, is like one place to start. I always start people off with like our anthology of all of our stories, because it's just especially in our group where there's just so many different healing paths that people are taking. Like, like there's no way to generalize how this stuff is working because it's all made of like your biographical stuff. Um, so it's like every story is going to be unique, but you know, the, the core of that, like that change, that flexibility, open-mindedness and, and for a lot of people just having a moment of calm sometimes during their session can be profound to be like, have I just been in like freaking out my entire life? Like, have I never, have I never been calm before? Like I suddenly you touch that and you're like, you start to question what your normal baseline state really, really is doing for you. Um, so yeah, storytelling, just finding stories and giving people mirrors for their own story and connecting them that way, I think has been my experience has been successful. Relatability, powerful, right? No, that's, that was quite helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dad, you're muted. 
I'm just saying, Aaron, I think you're a wonderful spokesperson because you're obviously very intelligent, articulate, you have personal experience, and people can hear that you're not some, um, you know, strung out ex-hippie who's, uh, you know, just had their brain fried with acid. So uh, I, mean, I don't know. You never know, though. I mean, I, I, might, I, I might have like some patchouli oil in my case back here. You never know. Like, I, might have... <laughs> I think you I think you do a wonderful job of speaking and articulating and educating. And I think that's what it's going to take ultimately is seeing that it's not just people that are psychotic or, you know, that are taking psychedelics. It's people that are very intelligent, very thoughtful, very educated, very compassionate who are using these medicines in a way that's helpful and i think yeah. as you said, just by telling those kind of stories and people will say well wait a minute it's going to create some cognitive dissonance you know my belief was about psychedelics whether they're bad drugs but here are these wise intelligent thoughtful people who are using them how do i resolve this cognitive dissonance and i think you're doing a great job of doing that and providing people the different perspectives so thank you yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I also politely invite us to imagine like 10 years from now where we can also tolerate the idea of people uh, enjoying these compounds for more than just uh, healing, like a, a world in which we don't have to be unwell in order to be permitted access to these tools. Like I think Bob Jesse would use the term, like the betterment of well people should be allowed. Um, and that's certainly been my experience. Uh, I, I'm, I have a deep privilege just to have access. I've taken risks uh, that my, many others wouldn't be comfortable with, but I, I, I would love to have more people with the capacity, at least to have the cognitive liberty to choose these things, especially with the known safety at when you are really, uh, you know, utilizing certain, certain dose ranges, like the, the, some of these things are safer than taking like a half of a Tylenol, uh, like in terms of just like toxicity and other like effects. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, a, it's an education campaign for us. Um, but yeah, we have to start for now the, as per Richard Nixon, we have to prove medical benefit in order for things to be okay while alcohol and tobacco are just floating around anyhow. Um, but I, I do think yeah. that there's, there's space for healing and there's also space for people to just, you know, be able to do what they might need to do with, with the things that are growing in their, in their backyards. Remind us all uh, and remind all the listeners where they can find you. Yeah, for sure. AutisticPsychedelic.com is our website. We have an open Sunday Zoom every Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific. We also have a parents meeting every first Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. All that's on our website, along with the books and everything else. Well, guys, um, I'm trying to hold in my joy and excitement because this might be the coolest podcast I've ever done and ever will do in my life. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Aaron. And, and Dad, thank you for sharing your expertise. And Jack and Emily, thank you guys so much for contributing on the nutrition side. Um, I can't wait to, to get this out to people and have this conversation more casually and, and, and more exciting.